Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back to Race Theory. This is episode 13. We are 2017, and I am a shock specialist at Premium Motorsports in the Cup Series. This is something that we had done because we really didn't have any options to drive prior to this, uh, after some of the things we were involved in. And, you know, it was a way that I could still stay relevant. Uh, I enjoyed shock absorbers and obviously had a lot of expertise in that and had built, designed, taken products to market in the shock absorber industry, had, you know, been with uh, taking gas shocks to the world of outlaws, which had was unheard of. Uh, so that was really kind of my my area of expertise. And so I went there to do that and ended up doing a lot of other things on the race cars as well and, and doing a, a mechanic work and setup work and those types of things uh, as well. Um, but it really was... Um, you know, enjoyable from that aspect. Can you go back to the to the racetrack uh, and doing the shock absorbers and setting up all the bump springs and you know the way that the Cup Series was running at that point in time. And but the key element was that we were going to be in a position that if we could procure sponsorship, I would have the opportunity to drive the second car, which was an open car. At that time, Premium had a charter car, and they had an open car. Now explain the charter system for those listeners that are not familiar with how did this come about because this is something that's relatively new to NASCAR. Well, I was I was involved with Premium uh, when they had just kind of started their relationship. Uh, he had been working with a gentleman out of Texas and they formed uh, their racing team. And I knew that there was this opportunity that NASCAR was going to, you know, um, do some things with a charter system. And basically a charter system was going to be a franchising and NASCAR had never done anything like this before. And they were going to basically set it where they were going to give away these franchises, 36 of them. But you, the only way that you were going to get them was if you had run uh, and attempted every race for two consecutive years. So at this time, I had talked to Jay about trying to get him to do a cup team. And I knew of people that I felt like a good crew chief and opportunity to get started doing that under this pretense that this would be something that we would want, you would want to do. I expected that I would probably, I was hoping, I felt like that I was going to get to, to drive the car. And to clarify attempt the, every single race, not run every single race, but you had to show up, pay the entry fee, um, attempt to qualify and, uh, and attempt these races. Correct. You, yes. you didn't have to make them. You just had to attempt, uh, every race. So knowingly they would go, premium would go to the race and if they made the race great and they would run their business model as a way to just put in the time. And then if they missed the race, then obviously, you know, it, it was detrimental, but they were still had their eye on the prize. And that was to be in a position to get a charter. It worked out. Premium ended up with a charter. And there was teams like of magnitude 
that were running a limited schedule. If you paid attention to NASCAR back when the Wood Brothers were doing a limited schedule, they had pulled back. They had Ford Motorcraft sponsorship, but were running a limited schedule. They ended up not getting a charter because of the fact that they had not been running a full schedule. They had not attempted all the races. So it was quite to, of a to-do over that when it all happened. But here they were. They had a they had a uh, they had a charter. Jay never really put me in the cup car, which really did sever our our relationship to some degree. I was uh, unhappy that I had provided all the you know the convincing and the people and leading him down the path to get him going in that direction, and then really didn't get the ride. Uh, so you know it was disappointing, and it really did. I think for me, it did uh, set a precedent. And that was the beginning of a declining relationship with that. So, and from there, uh, you know, it, it progressed and then they, you know, they had lots of drivers driving their cars and just trying to keep going. They had a charter. So the charter was like a franchise. They gave away 36 of them. What it was is that there is a set amount of prize money depending on where you finished in the points. So they set this up. At a point where, like, if you won the championship, then you got the higher amount of money, you know, per, percentage-wise of the actual purse. And then on on down to the guys down to 36. So if you were to able to actually, you know, in the years to come, if you had, a, you know, a, a team that was getting out or quitting and they had a charter, then you could purchase that charter for a set amount of money. And then depending on where they're at in points, it would tell you how much revenue that that actual charter would bring per race guaranteed just to start. So it was a quite a different dynamic uh, than NASCAR had ever had before, because basically you had to show up and make the race. And then they did provisionals, what they did for champions provisionals when, you know, uh, which they gave champion provisionals. And then if you were in points, it gave the teams that were up in the points if they had crash qualifying or something that gave them a chance to get in a gimme or a, you know, a, a, a mulligan to, so to speak. So, but the charter system, people were, you know, they were not thought of as being, um, worth a great deal of money, but it did give them equity. And that's what the owners wanted. The owners wanted a way to know that they didn't have to go make the race. They were in the race and they could sell sponsorship not have egg on their face if they had a problem, even the lesser teams. So they weren't fighting for a start. They were, you know, you know, basically in it and they could do what they needed to do to preserve their program. As things progressed, obviously the whole dynamic started to change because there were teams that were, you know, not their business model was not to go out and perform at a high level. It really was just to make money. They had a guaranteed spot. They could take less money. They could go run their motors to death. Uh, they could just, you know, pretty much circumvented the the thing about putting out the best 36 cars as they could. And there was still four spots that were open, but for the open cars, for the teams that did not have a actual charter, like the Wood Brothers or other teams that wanted to run select races, they could go and race against those other teams that showed up for those last four spots. And of course the purse was much smaller on those open cars. Yeah. So it kind of, um, made it less attractive to go run those races, but yet 
NASCAR, although they were a little bit reticent about doing the charter system at first, it was really, um, really lobbied by the teams and by the owners, the owners of the NASCAR teams. But they did like the idea of those fields being more full because they were getting to a point where the fields were getting less and less. And so those years leading up to the charter system definitely had a lot fuller fields. And I think ultimately they were looking for, you know, again, perception in the marketplace, right? That, you know, you're now like other forms of sport where you had franchises right. and they were worth or going to be worth more money depending on the television packages and the underlining, you know, things that would make it worth more money. Just like in the NFL where you actually own the Miami Dolphins, but you're under the umbrella of the NFL. Correct. So as it worked out over the years, uh, you know, it allowed, you know, teams that had these because they ran several teams, they ended up with two charters within the organization or three charters within the organization. So there was only selected amounts of actual teams, but charters that were owned by multiple car owners. And then they had a deal. You only could have four, you know, teams at some point. So it really, there was always underlining things that, you know, dictated what you could and what you could not have. But having a charter, um, you, you know, if you had an open car, you did make, you know, a substantial amount of money, but as time went along, you know, more and more, you know, people that were involved with the teams kept trying to, you know, find ways to get that money out of the open cars and put back into the, uh, the charter teams, right? So they would make more money because they felt like that the teams that were showing up were just riding and making a lot of money and weren't having to perform. Whereas the Correct. charters were, right? Correct. And they had a rule, which has probably was something that was of a, a, a big interest, not at the time, but became a big factor was the bottom three. Mm -hmm. There was a clause in the actual concept of the charter system th that basically, if you were in the bottom three in points, points three years in a row, that they could revoke your charter. And of course, they did not really enforce this the no. first several years. And so there was a lot of teams, this one included, that that just flew under the radar on that. Yes. And then, just ran and just ran and did not and the business model was not to run competitively, but to make money. Mm -hmm. So yep. they were disenchanted by that. So but as of changed. last year, yeah, NASCAR then decides last year that they're going to enforce it. That's correct. So those are again Things change, you know, perception changes, and obviously uh, when you start to get in a situation like that, there's a lot of bargaining and a lot of collective um, thoughts and, and premises on what they should and shouldn't do. And, they, and you always have people that have, you know, NASCAR's ear more than the others. So I've been in those, all those owners meetings uh, with the charter of teams only, and you can see and understand who has the clout and who doesn't and what they're really looking for. So it's very self-serving. and There's a pecking order for sure. Is. And much to your dismay, you become very, it's very apparent that you are a lesser team in the pecking order of the charters when you're supposed to be pretty much the same. So mm -hmm. You have and, less influence and, and less right to your opinions. And there is a group of teams that get to do all of the, uh, you know, the specialized uh, meetings about what's going to happen and what rule changes are going to be and, and that type of thing. So again, it's 
it is like you say, there's always things that, you know, you're not going to be, be privy to and have an opportunity to be involved with, even though you're supposed to be. But so getting back to where that is, we were involved with the premium team and they did have a charter and they were using a open car as a way to build revenue. So they could, they knew they had guaranteed revenue. They could take an open car and have sponsorship on that car, a driver that maybe didn't have the experience or was looking for experience coming up from Xfinity or trucks, showcase, you know, showcase his potential, could come in for X amount of dollars, drive the cup car, and but would have to make the race on his time. So uh, different dynamic. And so that was the lure for us to continue doing what we were doing at Premium was because I really – we we felt like the you know, Alicia felt like she could find sponsorship and that I could be able to get back in a cup car uh, on a, a limited basis and enjoy what I had not done for some time. Yep. And I certainly did. And the first one being, um, actually did have sponsorship for Daytona 500, but it wasn't enough. But um, we um, went to Atlanta with sponsorship, Adrenaline Power Sports, uh, Jimmy Wade. Mm-hmm. And who is still a, a friend to this day? Hope he's listening. And um, he uh, he brought money for that race. And so you um, returned to the Cup car after, geez, I think it was probably fifteen years. It was it had been quite a, a spell of time. I don't think it was that long, but it, it had been a while. It had been a while because I do remember you got interviewed um, quite a bit, um, got some things written, remembered. Uh, Jimmy Johnson saying some nice things about, hey, he's got the biggest smile on his face because it's, um, you know, it's so gratifying to to come back to this series um, after you've been away from it for a while. And I also remember when you were um, getting your driver's suit on and uh, you come out the doors and um, Bill Elliott happened to be walking by and he said, Derek, what are you doing? And you said, I'm having fun. And he nodded his head and he goes, yep, we all wish we were doing that. So I, I think it's, um, it's it's worth telling that you know the the old timers no disrespect here baby that you know they always still want to be racing no matter what it is that they're doing so but um yeah you did very you did very decently in that race um you practiced well uh, you qualified decent especially in poorer equipment and um yeah it was our kind of return and uh there was renewed zeal and vigor we were you know we were excited. I remember, I think, I think they were, they were surprised by my first lap on the racetrack that we were like right within, you know, two, three tenths of uh, the, op- of their uh, charter car. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they obviously have been doing it every week and we come right back and we're right there and, but had a decent effort and it was fun to get back at it. And, you know, he was, I remember Brett Bodine doing the same thing. You know, he was working for NASCAR driving the pace car and he did all of the, you know, for the drivers coming in to be able to approve them or not approve them. And he was like, man, he says, he says, great to see you. And he said, uh, I, I, I think we all wish we were doing what you're doing, you know? And, uh, I think they can understand, you know, the, they, they got out before they really wanted to. And here I was being able to still do what I wanted to do. And, you know, um, I think, uh, some certainly, uh, 
or jealous, obviously. Yeah, well, I was doing everything in my power to get into that car as much as I could. And um, I had a set amount given to me that this is how much the open car is going to be. And then this is how much that the charter car is going to be, which was quite a bit more. So I had my work cut out for me, but I was able to get a vacation company um, to come on for Pocono. Um, we were able to get the relationship back with Maine and Tail, um, which we hadn't you know, spoken with them the whole time we were running Xfinity. I was trying to get a hold of the management there and was in unable to get their ear. But I um, happened to um, be at the right place at the right time um, on a cold call and uh, finally got back to the owner. Um, and uh, Devin and Ashen were willing to give us another shot once they found out that you were the driver and that you were back in, up in the Cup Series. And it really was a shift. Xfinity sponsorship was a lot harder to get than Cup was. And I found that a lot of doors that had been closed to me before were now open they were just kind of waiting for, oh, you're in the Cup Series. Yeah, we'd like to to sponsor. Um, and so I was relatively um, successful in getting you enough sponsorship to run. Um, I think we you ran six, seven races and six were sponsored and one was unsponsored because they didn't have anybody to run that open car. And um, so it was just a black uh, solid car. And that night, um, one of my PR interns who has worked for me, um, forever, uh, Jason Larravee Jr. Um, he said, um, Hey, there's somebody who wants to, wants to talk to you. And I was like, really? And he said, yeah, he was just uh, on your Facebook, like at midnight. And I thought, wow, boy, this is an easy one. I pick up the phone and call this guy. And lo and behold, this is a guy who had known you in the Maine and Tail days, the Kohler brothers from Jersey. And their dad had actually worked for Maine and Tail. And um, he wanted to know how much it takes to sponsor a car. And I told him the price and he said, done. And so um, they were um, slotted to come to the Michigan race. So this was the beginning of the summer. But um, what happened before then um, was we, we meaning myself and Kevin Cope, uh, no relation, but um, he had been finest sponsorship for us since the Xfinity days. We had been nursing a sponsorship deal for some time, and it had it was a major sports bar franchise, and they had gotten so large that they had actually turned over their marketing budget to a PR agency. And the owner was interested in talking to me, but said, now our, our PR dollars and anything like this is going to be handled by the agency. Now, typically when this happens, um, it gets to an agency um, that is usually a death sentence for a small team like us and trying to find sponsorship because PR agencies, um, a lot of times that you know, they're young, they're females, they don't, they don't have a knowledge of NASCAR. Um, and I don't mean to be throwing the females under the bus, but a lot of times if I heard that it was a female um, PR agency rep, I'd be like, you know what, I'm screwed. But um, this PR rep was like, yeah, I want to talk to you about this. Obviously, we want to talk to a NASCAR driver, someone who's not young whippersnapper, but it was more of a gentleman's club type place. So um, we were excited. So Kevin and I made the pitch, they accepted, and they were going to do five races that year with um, a re-up to do the whole year, the following year, if it went well. And we had all kinds of things um, 
planned, um, show car appearances, you showing up for autograph sessions, um, all kinds of swag that was already created because Kevin Cope has his own apparel company. So it was going like gangbusters. I was so excited. I felt like our ship had come in and this was your return to full-time racing. Well, we um, have a conference call with the owner of this sports bar franchise and the PR agency and the owner of Premium Motorsports. And he single-handedly, intentionally sabotaged that deal. And to the point where the PR agency rep said, I have never before been involved in a meeting where I got the absolute F you, there's the door. We don't want your money. And I was, I was shell-shocked. I mean, you could have seen my jaw hit the floor. Derek and I both just looked at each other. We were on the phone like, what the hell just happened here? I packed up my stuff and I left, and that was that. Now, I did have sponsors for the rest of the year, so we had three more races. So I still had to entertain those, entertain those folks. So showed up, and, um, and uh, that's... I think, I think something that was the reasoning behind that, too, was that they had had another driver that had this other sponsors that they thought and been told that they were coming on board. The sum was a lot more money. And I think they were banking on that coming through. So he was willing to, you know, just try to kill this deal because the other ones were telling him that they were going to have this deal and they would do not do that. So I think we just got, you know, we got shifted out of the thing and it was, it was so sad because it was an outstanding company, great, exciting, uh, nationwide, you know, uh, and it was going to be a fun thing to go out and, and represent their, uh, their company. So, uh, but go ahead. I, it was, I don't mean to interrupt you. No, that, that was pretty much the end of the story on that one. But, um, we definitely started a relationship again. That was the year that Main and Tail and Starcom Racing came into our lives. And we are so eternally blessed that we were able to nurture that relationship and um, give them, despite what was going on um, with the team that we were with, we were able to give them exquisite sponsorship experience. And they remembered that. And at the end of the year, because they had been treated so poorly by premium, um, Starcom Racing said, hey, we know that you and Derek are, you know, the reason that we're here and you're the real deal. How much does it cost to run a race team? And you were like, you're serious. And they said, yeah. And so we went to the drawing board and you started making spreadsheets. And in a month, we were ready to go to the track. Well, this was in the middle of the year. Actually, they, you know, were asking those questions in the middle of the year. And well, was, we were putting was, them off. Because it was it we was basically August, and we were, you know, you know, we were still working there, and and you know, in good faith, trying to move along. But they were adamant that they wanted to possibly start their own race team, and they're asking some, you know, very de- you know, definitive questions about it, and. Once we laid out the numbers and the groundwork and basically given them, you know, some realistic expectations versus the money that it would take, they wanted to do it. And then that's even while we were still with the premium, they came to some races, Richmond being one of them, and the owners of premium was trying to talk them out of it because we had already pretty much told them at that point that we were going that direction. And 
I think they just didn't think they had the money, nor did they even want to like research and do their due diligence to figure out who these people were. They just assumed. They didn't have the money. They didn't have the money. And I think they, at that point that they were going to do that, then they started trying to deter them from coming in and doing it and saying, you'll, you know, you'll never find a charter. You'll never get a charter. And you, oh, know, you don't have the, you, you don't, don't have, have enough money. You don't have enough money to, run a to do team. this. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously uh, that probably lit the fire for the boys even more. And uh, that was kind of a turning point, I think, where they said, you know what, that's almost like a challenge. Right. And basically at that point, I think it was on. and then we were able to get started. And I think we started basically without absolutely nothing. This was a dream. This was the Jersey Boys dream. And it started in, I think it started in September is when we actually went to work and we had left premium and we had to find a building. We had to find equipment and we had nothing, not a bolt one. We were scouring Iredell and Rowan County, North Carolina, for anything. I mean, even a, a shed to to house a car and enough people to work on this thing. And we were able to secure a building in Salisbury. And that's what brought us here. Um, and they weren't interested in buying anything just yet. We just leased a place. But it, you know, needed to have, you know, good enough lighting. Well, we thought it was going to be a limited schedule. Yes. That was a, originally the plan was to run a limited schedule, get up and running, and then methodically build the program, which we were very much, you know, amenable to. And then all of a sudden, you know, we found a, a small building and, you know, right close to here to Salisbury. And it was, you know, kind of out of the Mooresville rat race, which I liked. And it was a decent little drive for us. We were still living in Mooresville and it was not a bad commute. And we found this little building, started working on it and uh, making it conducive to welder, have using welders and being a race team. And then the owners, you know, instead of wanting to just take their time and, you know, find relationships and get, uh, you know, cars, they wanted to go racing. They wanted to get a car. And so I really was reluctant to do that because I I wanted to do this methodically, put their best possible thing we could on a racetrack. But it was, you know, inevitable that they had to get to the racetrack. So I ended up finding a car and, you know, it had an engine uh, in it, I believe, and everything. And we bought the car complete. And next thing you know, we we're up and running. And within two months, we have all the equipment. And we had our transporter. We still owned a transporter. And we supplied our, you know, put the transporter in the, in, in the mix there so we could get it to the racetrack. And bought cars, bought equipment, pit box, track box, you name it. And we were at Kansas in a matter of a couple of months. A couple of weeks? Well, no, it was a couple of months. It was, it was a couple of months. I think it was September and we went to Kansas and I think it was early October, I believe. That's a couple of weeks. Well, and well, maybe it, was, it wasn't. <laughs> I think. Well, I I, I want to believe that it was a little longer than that. It might have been a month or or whatever, but it was a short period of time. But we were able to get to the racetrack, and uh, you know, it was it was a lot to do with one car in there and just enough people, you know, to get this thing going right. And a crew chief and a car chief and uh, one other guy, I believe, at that point in time, just helping us get this car. We had to lease our through. own pit guns. We had to lease a pit crew. Yeah, and we we get there and and we're barely holding things together. Have all of our entry fees in and everything. And um, you immediately 
have problems with the car, you get out there. And I, of course, I had been told by the crew chief at that time that, oh man, this is going to be the best car Derek's ever driven in two decades. And so we were excited. I mean, and the owners were just pumped. And you get out there and you're like a squirrel looking for a nut. You're all over the place. They're like, what is wrong with this car? And you said, this thing has no drivability. It's all over the place. The, the last steering. time I was there at Kansas with premium, I had ran exceptionally well and really fast until the motor blew up. And so I had a lot of confidence going back to Kansas because I had been there recently and felt like that I knew exactly what my needs were. And I thought we were going to have a solid effort, but the car was just really undrivable. had, you know, it was had something in the steering. You couldn't really keep the thing. I, it wouldn't drive in a straight line. And we kept working on it. And, and finally, you know, we got through uh, and, and got to the end of the race. And well, you, I actually made you stop. They were going to have you go back out. Well, I mean, I, I about wrecked the thing. I mean, it wouldn't, you couldn't even drive the thing. It was so bad. And we'd come in and try to fix things and go back out and try it again. And at that point, I mean, when I was just about was sideways in front of the field, I said, I'm not doing anymore. This is it. And we just came in and I, we parked it and I said, we're not going back out. There's something drastically wrong in the front of this car and you guys need to find it. And by that time they really got in and started diving in at it. And cause we had already pretty much said, we're not going back out. And then they found the problem and it was with the, you know, the steering, uh, the bearings and the drag length that they had there, it, you know, basically was coming apart and you couldn't drive the car. So you had no you know, steering. You had no steering basically. So we were fortunate enough that we didn't wreck the car and, you know, or wreck anyone else, and wreck anyone else. Right. So it was a, it was an auspicious beginning and not the way I really wanted this to happen for the boys. And you hate having egg in your face. You hate having things go poorly the first time out. But, you know, you just basically, you know, this was a, a Hail Mary, just getting a car and getting everything ready to go to be at the racetrack. But the boys understood. And now it was just for us to settle in and start trying to procure relationships and cars and equipment and engine program to get ready to go racing, you know, the following year. So we well, were, we did Phoenix. Yeah, well, that's right. We did Phoenix. Yeah, that's right. I forgot. We did go to Phoenix and ran there and didn't run terrible there. Um, yeah, we finished the yeah, race. Yeah, I think we finished the race and it wasn't a bad effort because uh, we had gone and tested the car. We found, fixed all those problems um, and went and tested the car uh, at Motor Mile and the car performed relatively well. And I was pleased with how well it turned and everything. And then we went to Phoenix. Didn't have quite the same tendency out there. Uh, the car was tight, wouldn't turn, but probably a lot more aero related on some things than we really knew and the, maybe the platform. So we were really just kind of getting, you know, our feet wet again. And, uh, but we finished the race and, uh, no damage and, you know, it was a success and the boys were excited about the new, um, you know, pursuit. And it was now about getting ready for, you know, the next year. Well, and they were already being courted by RCR for the charter. Well, we actually had, we had actually gone there and, you know, and I knew, we knew that they had a charter and that they were not running this other team. And it was the old Menard, uh, Paul Menard, uh, 27 car. So we were trying to, you know, get this charter. But we were in the running with a lot of other people that wanted a charter. It was the most competitive time for a charter. I remember that whole off season, we were on pins and needles. Thinking that we had it. Nope, we don't have it. Think that we have it. Someone else has got a bid on it. We've well, got it. We wanted to we buy don't it. We got it. Right. We wanted to buy it. And there was a lot of people in the mix to to buy it. And it ended up where RCR 
made the decision that they did not want to sell the charter. They wanted to hang on for another year and see if they could put together a sponsorship. They wanted to lease the charter to us. So that's how it happened. We basically leased the charter for a year and made payments, you know, to them on that. And then we ended up talking to them about a motor program. And that's where, you know, my business model that I had basically put together was to own our own engines, buy the best engines I could buy. And since I had a relationship with Rich Gilmore, who was running ECR Earnhardt Children's Racing Engines, he was on my team when I won Daytona. So we were able to buy enough engines from him that were, you know, pretty much state of the art because they had been doing engine lease programs with the likes of JTG and they had some defections. So they had a glut of engines there that really put us in a very prime position to get quality engines at a very reduced price. And then we could run the engines more races than spending big dollars to run just one race and being leased. A lease was about $90,000 a race. And in my business model, that wasn't going to work. <laughs> and in the boys' money business model, it wasn't going to work. Yes. So, and, at, and at this point, Billy Walliman, who we just love him, um, he, but he was not interested in NASCAR. He's he, a CFO. He's yeah. a CFO, and he, his arm was being twisted by Matt and Mike. And at first, Matt wasn't too keen on either. This was all kind of Mike's dream. It is correct. And, um, but then once Matt came to the racetrack, then he was hooked. And, and uh, you know, now he's, he's loving it. But, you know, it, it was interesting, the dynamic between these three boys, um, childhood best friends and two brothers. And um, they manage a business and a race team without a whole lot of, of trouble. I mean, I've never seen a family run business and friends get into business that not only are they incredibly successful, but they all get along. Well, they, they all complemented each other. They do. They all have you, different you things. You had, you know, the CFO who managed the money and all of those types of things. It was kind of like the one that kept them all reined in. And you had Mike who was in the field and, and running the, the, the nuts and bolts of the company. And then you had the schmoozer. And you <laughs> yes. had Matt. Matt. Matt's the major schmoozer. Yes. Now, he's the one that, you know, came from another company. But he was the one that went out and tried to procure you know, new business. So he's whining and dining people in Manhattan and taking care of them where he learned and to love. And he does love, it very well, I might where add. Where he learned to love wine and <laughs> steak. So, and that would come into play for us later. Yes. We, we turned, we, we gained 15 pounds and became alcoholics in the, uh, the introduction of Matthew Kohler into our lives. Yes. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, I was the consummate cab drinker, but didn't, you know, didn't drink a lot, but you got to the point where it was, I had my first tomahawk and it was a monster and, you know, a lot of cab. So it was a fun, fun time, but great people to be with. And, you know, it was, you could tell when we had our first meeting at Michigan, we had that dinner function there, right? You could tell the, the type of people they were. They loved to eat. They loved to have fun. And they Pocono. The first at, dinner was at Pocono, at Pocono I'm sorry, with yeah. all the kids. Yeah, with all the yes. kids. Yeah. And then the bachelor party was Michigan. That's right. The bachelor party. Yeah. But you know, the one that and we had a really great, you know, evening, you know, where we had all the families there and you got to know the kids and, you know, just really, you could just tell that this was going to be a family orientated fun affair and everybody just, you know, you felt at home and that's how it remained to the end. And we really had a great, uh, 
a great relationship with them. And again, as I was alluding to, they complemented each other. So their business worked really well because each of them knew what their role was and they just, you know, did it to a T. And so, you know, but at the same time, you know, Billy was not all that enthused. And, you know, I think was looking at it from a financial standpoint, it could be a, more of a drain. And we were always, you know, already trying to find a way. And the charter was the key because of the amount of money, uh, purse money that you would have was significant where with our business model, we could physically make money and or be you know in the black or in a push situation, which really was, you know, unheard of in the Cup Series. Well, and you were very um, anal about the spreadsheets, and I think that's where you really gained Billy's trust. Is that you could say without a doubt, this is how much this is going to cost, and you did not inflate those prices just because you wanted to run better. And in the beginning, you were to be in the car. It didn't turn out that way. And we'll talk about that on a future episode as to, you know, who we ended up putting in the car, but you were supposed to be in the car. So you could have easily said, well, I want the A1 engine program and I want this for aerodynamics and we need to be going to the wind tunnel and we need to have the top of the line crew chief, but you didn't. You, you showed them through your own research and connections, um, what they could do on minimal money, the maximum they could do on minimal money. And you may have, you know, cut yourself short there at the very beginning, but you did gain trust and integrity. And it's something that you can still do for people now. People ask for your consultation services all the time because you have known these people. People don't usually change that much in NASCAR. People who have always been in one department or the other are still there. And so those connections are are lifelong. And you've been able to really um nurture those relationships to where it is mutually beneficial when you both need something from each other, no matter what it is, whether it's shocks or sheet metal or chassis or engines. Um, and same thing with the people, the people have all rotated through NASCAR. I mean, you always know that you're going to see another person again. Um, yeah, that's why you can't burn a bridge because you got to walk over it again. Well, yeah. there's some bridges, some, yeah, some I, bridges I burn. Yes, we know that <laughs> we've seen you burn and go down. Yeah. yeah. But anyways, uh, the, the deal was that I think they put a lot of trust in me. I mean, they gave us credit cards and we are, and you're dealing with large sums of money going out on a daily basis. And, you know, you really want to run the company like it's your own, spending the money like it's your own. And in that way, you know, you feel good that, you know, when they ask you a question, you can give them quantifiable, you know, return on what, what you bought and what the cost is and the reasoning why. And I'm all, always that way. I'm always very, you know, very transparent. I wanted them to feel comfortable that, you know, they could entrust this team and the money to us and that, you know, we weren't going to steer them wrong. And they became family and you felt that way from the beginning. So I wanted to drive the race car in the worst way. And I really, you know, yeah, I didn't, I made just conscious choices, you know, for an engine program to run it, even though I thought they were going to be really good engines. And I felt confident that Richie was going to do us right. And he did. Um, but we could not afford, or I wasn't going to spend, you know, three and a half million dollars on an engine program. We could not do, I could not put the boys through that. So we made choices. And then you could, it was apparent with the money we had to spend for the charter lease and all the things that it was going to be taxing. And I felt like that 
we needed to look for a driver that could bring some money to offset and mitigate some of this pay pain for Billy, um, just to keep the thing going in a very positive light. So I was going to sacrifice what I really wanted to be doing and what Mike and everybody I think wanted me to do. And that was drive to say, this is a business. We have to run it like a business and I'm willing to, you know, get out of the car now so that we can get off on the right foot because we, now we have a lease charter and our hope is to run well enough, put money in the till where we can purchase the charter the following year. And no one, you know, everybody from premium, everybody else said, you'll never get a charter. You'll never get a charter. And when I was hell bent on making sure I got a charter. So I felt like that was really the end of the means. We had to have a charter to be in this long term and to be profitable. And so everything that I did was based around, you know, those uh, pretenses. Yes. And, it, even though it was, um, it was almost like we had to have a funeral for you not being a driver anymore. And I really thought that that was it, that you would never be in a car again, that, you know, we had to, um, again, pivot, switch gears, find, find not only sponsorship, but a driver that brought money to be able to, you know, keep this thing afloat. And it really was, um, it was survival for us as well. Um, to make sure that that we maintained our living in racing. You know, I think when we first talked to the guys and, you know, we were talking about having, you know, real, realistic expectations and taking the emotion out of it because that's the worst thing that always happened to people that wanted to come in racing was they got so emotionally uh, involved. And then spend too much money. And then spend lots of money, make poor decisions, throw money at it, want to run better because it was all about, you know, you know, the perception of running good and being, a, you know, having, being relevant, all those things. But when you're starting from scratch with nothing and you're starting in the cup series, you can spend a lot of money very quickly. And I wanted them to, you know, take a different approach. I wanted them to be here for a long period of time, not only for our own, you know, but for them and yes. not, not burn them out. And I knew we had to have, you know, funding from a driver, but I wanted them to have, you know, realistic expectations about what we could do with what we were spending in contrast to the 20, 30 million that the big teams were spending. Right. You know, I mean, we, we had what, you know, 12 employees, they and the other teams you were racing have 400 to 600 and they're spending, and we're going to spend, you know, four or five, six million dollars or whatever the case may be. And these guys are spending 20 to $40 million a year. Well, and that's just mid-pack. Yeah. We're not even talking the the, exactly. the top ten. Well, and and I think it was kind of a eye opener for Mike, especially um, when, I mean, we did not. You and I had the business model that we never paid for hotel and we never paid for food. Sometimes we'd end up paying for hotels if we could not get a trade, but we never paid full price. And so I had an assistant, Donna, she was really great at getting both. And we would nurture those relationships. And the first hotel that we put them in was a trade. They put a decal on the car, would entertain their people at the race, um, had known these people at Kansas for some time. And, you know, it's definitely not a five-star hotel. It's not a flea-bitten hotel, but it's not luxury, right? It's pretty middle of the line. But the first thing that happens when Mike takes a shower that morning <laughs> Is his shower head falls off, <laughs> so he wasn't too impressed with uh, with my hotel booking uh, capabilities. But um, you know, it just I think that they realized then, you know, that we're not going to you know sell them a dream and take them up the river and and blow all their money 
um, and then leave them with nothing at the end. So, and it definitely proved to be true. And, and, um, you know, we're, we're still doing it. Yeah. I think that was, that was the, the start where, you know, they really were seeing that we were running the program as cost effectively, uh, to try to put a quality product out there, both aesthetically, as well as, you know, saving money when we could save money and, you know, trade out, do bartering. And, you know, that's all we always learned, you know, you, you can barter and that's how the world was. We worked for a long period of time. So we just tried to find mutually beneficial relationships and give value. And again, start that process of trying to have a pipeline of small sponsors that we could nurture, create a personal experience at the racetrack and doing hospitality, personal hospitality at the transporter. And that was the dynamic that seemed to work successfully for us to just continue to bring in small entities that would get a taste of it. And then we could hopefully grow that relationship later. And you did a great job with that. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, Donna and yourself and you worked hard in every facet of it to put those numbers together and the boys could see that. And they started understanding how the mechanism was going to work and they backed it. And so it was, um, it was an interesting time and a lot of hard work getting the thing going. Uh, and then they got their first taste of a driver bringing a sponsor and then, three races in or two races in the sponsor can't well, pay. We'll we talk, can't pay. Yep. And we'll talk more about yeah. that in the next episode. Right. So we, like I said, we was, you know, we got to a point here where that's where, where we're at. You know, they start to understand what it's all about. Uh, they think they know more about it than they did at that point. And then all of a sudden, like you said, they start to see things, you know, become, you know, a lot more difficult to understand. And uh, we'll go into that uh, in the next episode, but, um, you know, we appreciate uh, you listening. It was a fun uh, start to the Starcom days when we've had a lot of a lot of fun and get to talk about the Kohlers more. Yep, we get to talk about a lot more. And I uh, just want to encourage all of our listeners, please leave us a comment or visit us at Derek Cope Double Zero or at Health Coach Cope. Also, Derek has a personal Facebook as well as an athlete Facebook. And anytime you do leave us a comment or a review, please use hashtag race theory. Thank you very much. Have a good night, y'all. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope 00 and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.